This is Good Together, the podcast that inspires you to create change in the world every day. I'm your host, Laura Alexander-Wittig, CEO and founder of Brightly, the number one destination for conscious consumers around the world. At Good Together, we value the planet over perfection and believe that you can make positive things happen for the planet every day by being a conscious consumer and an informed citizen. Listen in as I chat with various experts about living and consuming responsibly. wondered what actually happens to your recyclables once they are picked up from the curb or where the clothes go that you put into a donation bin? This week, we're we sharing one of my personal favorite episodes where we do a deep dive into what really happens to the items we throw away. I promise you, it's not what you think. We also end the episode by talking about how you can personally reduce your waste by buying less and buying better. You're going to love this one. Enjoy. Hi, Adam. Welcome to Good Together. Thanks for having me. Yes. So listeners, we are thrilled to welcome Adam Minter today to Good Together. Um, He has been reporting on all sorts of topics that we love to talk about here for years. Actually, um, you know, over what did it say over 20 years, two decades, right? Yeah. 22 decades. Yep. (laughs) I love that. So everything from recycling, reuse, thrift stores, and really just general sustainable living. Um, Adam is the author of two books that we're really excited to chat most about today. Um, One is called Junkyard Planet, Travels in the Billion Dollar Trash Trade. Um, And then his newer title is Second Secondhand travels in the new global garage sale. And so the thing that's so interesting about this, and we know you're going to love listeners, is you know, this is a deep dive into really where our used stuff goes after we drop it off at the thrift store. I think most of us have the sort of happy idea in our head, but Adam really uncovered what, what happens. So we're so excited to have you, Adam. <laughs> well, thank you. I love talking about this stuff. So let's do it. Yeah. So I wonder if you can get us started. Um, you know, we, we talked about uh, sort of the title of both of those books, but really the, the the common thread between them is that you take a really in-depth look about where our things go after we get rid of them, whether they're stuff we're donating, recycling, or even just throwing away in the trash. So I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about what sparked your interest in this topic, because I bet you there's a cool story behind there. <laughs> there is. There's family history. It's, it's genetic. In fact, it goes back about 100 years. When my um, relatives arrived in the United States, uh, they arrived without any education, without any English, without any meaningful skills um, in Galveston, Texas. And so uh, they did what a lot of people around the world do when they don't have anything. They became recyclers. Um, Back in those days, it's called rag pickers. And it's exactly what it sounds like. They would go around the streets of Galveston, literally picking up fragments of clothing, maybe giving a few pennies for a shirt and recycling them, selling them to paper mills, because that's what a lot of the clothing ended up being back in those days. And so that's uh, that's the thread for me. And the business uh, moved up to Minneapolis and stayed in the family for many, many years. My grandmother was a manager of a thrift store for a decade. Um, my dad was in the recycling business. And so like I, I tell people, it's, it's in the genes, it's in my blood, and I was naturally inclined to be interested in it. And when I became a writer, you know, the advice is always 
write what you know. Well, for better and for worse, I know stuff and where it goes after the first owner doesn't want it anymore. So that's really where it began for me. That's fascinating. And I actually didn't even know that our, you know, back in the day, people took clothing and made it into paper. Is that what you were saying? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, that's, um, that's a very, very old form of recycling. We have documents of it um, going back 200 years in the United States. And it goes back even further, of course, in Europe, uh, cotton and linen. Um, If you go buy good paper, good stationery, it's often, you know, advertised as linen. And and that's that goes back to, to the recycling of clothes into paper. That is fascinating. You look, I've just, I never heard of that. You taught me something today. And honestly, I'd always wondered why fine stationery was made out of linen. I thought to myself, well, that seems like an interesting way to use that. I certainly wish we would get back to that practice as I know we don't really do that much anymore. (laughs) We don't, we don't. No, it's all wood-based with just a little bit of linen. Exactly. So that kind of leads me to my next question, which is, you know, from your experience, what happens when we throw something, you know, in the recycling bin, drop it off at Goodwill? Um, I think there's a probably two different supply chains. So this is probably a pretty complex answer. But I wonder if you can kind of get us started from that perspective. Sure, sure. Well, I, I, I love the fact that you use the term supply chain, because that's exactly uh, what it is. If we just talk about recycling, you know, if you put something in a recycling bin, say an aluminum can, um, and nobody wants to make more aluminum cans from yep. your old aluminum can. It's garbage, even if it's in the recycling bin. So, you know, that's what I always tell people about recycling is recycling and making stuff go together. And if nobody wants it, it's garbage. If somebody wants it, it's recycling. And so generally speaking, the stuff that you put in your recycling bin, um, somebody has a real incentive to find a place to make it into something new, whether that be the municipality that, you know, handles your recycling or the, um, you know, the company where you drop off your old car, they really have an incentive because if they can't find somebody to buy it, to make something new into it, it's garbage. And that costs money to dispose of. So where does stuff get manufactured these days? A lot of stuff gets manufactured in Asia, but a lot of stuff still gets manufactured here in the United States. You know, roughly half the steel in the United States comes from recycled uh, supply, you know, automobiles being number one, um, paper, you know, as we go through this pandemic and cardboard, huge volumes of paper and cardboard, the packaging for the Amazon boxes is, you know, that the your recycling bin is an important component of the supply chain for making those boxes. So it generally goes to people who want it for making new stuff. So that's the answer to the recycling question. Okay, yeah, that's so interesting. And I also think too, like, we've actually had in-depth, um, you know, uh, articles and and episodes around recycling itself. And I think there's obviously so many ways we could go into it. But one of the things I'm really encouraged by when it comes to sort of consumer interest is that I do think more and more of us are waking up to the fact that, you know, the whole out of sight, out of mind uh, mentality when it comes to anything, especially Mm -hmm. recycling, is just, it's not, it's not holding up, right? No. (laughs) I mean, you know, you've got people that truly, I actually... Um, before I found it brightly, I've, I've been really in the tech space for a long time. And we would have these uh, kitchens with all these snacks are kind of legendary. And I'm telling you, there were so many people that would just drink LaCroix um, all day, every day right. out of those cans, and they would never use a, a water bottle. And they're always, you know, drinking that. And I remember thinking to myself, I know that recyclable, um, you know, cans are a thing. 
But I would be very curious to know, like, if this person's consumption of LaCroix is really just this net zero that they really think it is, right? Why don't they just go fill up a a reusable water bottle? So yeah, just this culture of just excess and just Eh, throw in recycling men is just yes. really running out, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, in my first book, I, I talked about recycling as, uh, for some people, it's the get out of jail free card. You know, yes, I use that yes. term. It's like, oh, well, I put it in the recycling bin, no impact. And that aluminum can is going to go to green heaven and be transformed into other cans with no impact on the environment. That's not true. I mean, yep. an aluminum can that's been recycled uses less energy, uses less water to make the new can, but it's still using energy, water. There's still waste generated in the recycling process. The best thing you can do if you recycle for environmental purposes is don't use that can and recycle it in the first place, which is a slightly different message than the one we're accustomed to hearing. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think in general, and of course, a lot of us don't understand that, you know, the things that we even think are recyclable often aren't because mm-hmm. they have food residue or, you know, maybe the facilities um, that we're, you know, using close by can't even handle that type of material. So there's just so many really interesting ways, I think, yes. that we can all better understand recycling. And to your point, think about it more in terms of a waste reduction mm-hmm. um, exercise instead of a, okay, let me switch everything in my life to quote unquote recyclable alternatives. Maybe we should be thinking more about let's just cut down on like the packaging waste in general, regardless if it's quote unquote recyclable or not, because at the end of the day, it's an oversimplification that unfortunately I think we've all had to buy into. So yeah, we could, t- I'm sure you and I could have our cycling all day. Yes. We could. <laughs> I, I, and I couldn't agree more with you. I think that's exactly the right way to be thinking about the subject. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about like the thrift store side of things, because I think that's maybe even less known now. Um, You know, as people thought about, especially here in the, during the pandemic times, I was hearing about all of these folks cleaning out their closets Mm -hmm. and, and, and going through this, um, you know, ultimate cleanup uh, type mentality where you just want to pitch everything. I mean, there's even that Netflix show on, yes. I can't remember what it's called, uh, the, the, the edit, something like that, which right. is fun to watch, but it's like the whole thing is just pitching everything out of your house more or less. And so, right. you know, people are doing this, they're don't quote unquote donating their items, thinking they're going to um, who knows, charitable means, or even just they're going to be reused. So let's talk a little bit about like sure. that supply chain. Sure. Well, it's even more complicated than the recycling supply chain. Yeah. And, I mean, there's a million directions it can go, but but let's just focus it on a thrift store and, and let's focus it on Goodwill uh, because that's where I've, I've spent a lot of time reporting. Sure. Um, you know, when you come and drop off that bag of clothes or, um, you know, or, or old kids toys at Goodwill, um, they're immediately sorted for what is sellable. And, and this is a really important point to get right out at the beginning. People donate a lot of unreusable stuff, stuff that can't be reused to yes. Goodwill and thrift stores. And, and that's not a good thing to do because you're basically just offloading the responsibility to throw it away and asking Goodwill to pay for it instead of, you know, paying for it in your own trash bill. But even the good stuff that goes into Goodwill is, is not sold off the shelves very often. On average, your average thrift store only sells about one third of the stuff that goes on their shelves off the shelves. Now, that doesn't mean it's thrown away, um, but think about all the stuff that's donated. And, and I encourage everybody, if they ever get the chance, to spend a, an hour 
just at the donation door of a Goodwill or a Salvation mm. Army and just watch the flow of stuff and ask yourself, how on earth is anybody going to sell this? Goodwill does an extraordinary job as does the Salvation Army, but off their shelves, only about a third of it can sell. Um, where does the rest of it go? You know, Goodwill will have outlets where they will then, if it doesn't sell off those shelves, they'll sell it by the pound. If it doesn't sell there, there's many other directions it can go. So, for example, clothes that just can't sell can be turned into rags. And believe it or not, rag making is a gigantic industry worldwide. It's the final destination for a lot of clothing. And it's just what it sounds like. The, the clothes go to factories where they're cut up and sold, say, to hotels to use for wiping down counters in the bar or sold oh, interesting. to yeah, auto dealership for wiping off the dipstick uh, you know, after somebody's gotten an oil change. Car washes buy huge amounts of rags from old clothes for wiping down a car after it's gone through. Um, that's sort of the final use, and that's a big market. Interesting. I didn't actually know. I mean, so I had heard of the rag industry and I wondered if it literally was rags, right? Like I wondered if they were going to be, you know, kind of cut up and used for other purposes, but I hadn't thought about, you know, they're actually being used for cleaning purposes. So that's really interesting. I had never heard about that. Very cool. And it's a, it's a big industry and it's, it's global. Um, you know, the other thing that can happen with used clothes, and it happens with hard goods, that's the term in the industry, so hard goods being everything from toys to toasters, if you will, mm-hmm. um, is that they can be exported. And okay. there's huge demand in emerging markets, places like Africa, places like Southeast Asia, uh, for good quality used clothes. And they pay for it. You know, this stuff isn't dumped there. Nothing nothing ends up in Ghana, where I've spent a lot of time reporting on this trade, if somebody in Ghana isn't paying for it. And there is demand there for it for a couple of reasons. One, um, it's lower cost than buying new in many cases. But the second reason, and this is very interesting to me, and it took me a while to fully understand this, is it's generally perceived that if somebody has used a garment say in North America, in Canada, in the United States, that garment is of pretty good quality. It's not going to fall apart after two or three washes or or pill up. So one of the reasons you see buying of secondhand clothing in these emerging markets is it's just perceived as much better quality than the new stuff that's being shipped into them. Oh, that's so interesting. And so this is also a different take. Like I've also heard on the other side that certain countries are so overwhelmed with the amount of clothing that we send that they're saying, no, they don't want it anymore. So are you saying that that potentially is like a myth or maybe there are some countries that are overwhelmed, but in your experience, it's not quite that widespread? No, no. I, I actually, I, I tend to dispute that. In fact, in second Interesting. Hand, okay. Yeah. 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 I, in second hand, I actually I get into that uh, quite deep. And, and there's a, there's a few misconceptions here. One is that if, if, you know, a country is importing large volumes of used clothing, that that's undercutting their, um, their own textile industries. Yes. You hear this all the time. Yep. And, and, you know, there's really no proof of that. In fact, what's happened in a place, say like Ghana, or Nigeria or Benin, these West African countries that import a lot of this stuff. Um, It's not the used clothing that has hurt their textile industries, but it's what hurt um, the American textile industry. And that is low cost new clothing from East Asia, which undercuts the price. You know, used clothing and new clothing tend not to compete. But when you have a bunch of low cost clothing coming in from, you know, places like Bangladesh, it tends to be cheaper than what's being made in Ghana. Um, And that's really what's hurt them is that trade in new clothing. In terms of, you know, we've all seen the pictures of clothing piled up in uh, places uh, like Ghana and Nigeria. Oftentimes what you are seeing 
is the clothing that's been paid for and imported into these countries that wasn't able to be sold. I mean, uh, not yeah. every garment gets sold, you know, at a used clothing market in Ghana, just as not every garment gets sold at H and M. So, yeah. uh, so you know, that's what you're seeing, and they don't have. Um, you know, the nice, clean, private waste management systems that we do. There's not really very many good, clean dumps or incinerators in Ghana. So stuff get, tends to pile up. And if you don't understand what's going on when you take that picture, it can really be misperceived. That's really interesting. And another point I wanted to make, too, is I often find in the sustainable fashion community, uh, especially, there are a lot of mis misquoted, misrepresented, quote, facts, you know, quote, unquote, mm-hmm. facts that people seem to repeat and kind of take um, as gospel. And so, like I said, one of those was this, this myth now that we're talking about, um, about clothing kind of overwhelming um, different developing countries. So I think it's fascinating that you actually, you listened to that. And then you went and you did the research and were like, actually, this is not, you know, this is not 100% what, what people are saying. So right. I, I love that. I love the original reporting in there. That's amazing. Um, so yeah, I think in general, f- from our perspective, um, you know, as we talk to, you know, people who are starting to become more conscious consumers, right, they're really on their journey of, of this new sustainability lifestyle. Um, they are really starting to question why they're doing things, right? Mm-hmm. So w- I wonder if we can talk a little bit about like, the mentality around, you know, this, this throw it away and forget it uh, mentality. Yeah. Cause you know, you mentioned your, your family's history in at least back then being able to potentially recycle um, garments into stationary. Right. <laughs> um, and that was something that used to be available. Whereas now we really don't have those kind of supply chains. So we're, we're worse off from that perspective. And then we're also just worse off from a mental perspective, right? Yes. Like we, we, we often say like, how would your grandma do things, right? Because your grandma mm-hmm. certainly wasn't um, getting a bunch of takeout and styrofoam, right? Like right. she she wasn't getting takeout probably, period. <laughs> but if she right. was, um, it was not in that form. It's probably in like a wax paper or something like that. So um, yeah, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about this like cultural mindset and sort of how you see things. Yeah, well, one of the things I've had the privilege of being able to do is, is really travel the world, um, you know, in both emerging markets and developed markets and contemplate and report on and see how different cultures at different points in their economic development handle things. And one thing uh, is axiomatic. It's true in all places and at all times. And that is, as a country becomes more affluent, it throws away more stuff. You know, and and in many ways, it just comes down to that. Um, you know, in, in secondhand, um, I spent time with a really interesting guy by the name of Robin Ingenthron, who exports used electronics to Africa for reuse there. And, you know, he grew up uh, in a poor part of Appalachia. And he said, you know, one of the things he learned is poor people fix things. Rich people, if they're smart, sell fixable things to poor people. Um, oh, wow. You know? <laughs> that, that's really deep. <laughs> yeah. It is. It is. Um, but but it's, it's really true. And, and one of the things, um, you know, I, I've really learned is, you know, when we talk about things like e-waste or waste textiles, it really depends upon, you know, what, who's defining it. Is it going to be the person who throws the stuff away is the one who's defining what is waste, or is it the person who would like to fix it or reuse it is going to define what's waste? Because if it's the person who wants it, who wants to reuse it, um, generally they're going to think something's not garbage when somebody who's throwing it away thinks it is garbage. So my point is, is that one of the things that's really created this this throwaway culture, this waste-oriented culture, in my opinion, is that it, we, you know, the United States, of course, we're not all wealthy, but there is affluence here. And when you're affluent, 
you can essentially outsource your problem. You can, you know, oh, this is this is torn. It's cheaper for me because I have limited time because I'm working 10 hours a day to go buy another one instead of spend the time when I get home, uh, you know, mending it, you know, by sewing a new button on. And I think that's really what comes down to, whereas if you're in a, an emerging market country um, where you're just not making that much money, even though you're spending 10 hours a day at work, you know, the financial, the economic incentive is there to fix things, to hold on to things longer. Um, and so I think really it comes down to that. Now, there are certainly um, marketing elements to this. Yes. And, you know, people have and marketers have become expert at marketing convenience to us. And that's been going on really since the end of World War Two. Um, you know, when a lot of things were invented to benefit soldiers, they could throw it away and get a new one. And, and a lot of those inventions, um, you know, came back to consumers. Um, so there is an element of that. But I, but I ultimately think, you know, these affluent societies, um, at some point, there's an inflection point where it just becomes more disposable. Um, the good news is it also seems like after a while, they start to say, wait a second, this is not sustainable. And they sort of start bending back towards um, a more sustainable mindset, which is something we're seeing in the United States, Europe, and even China. Absolutely. And so, yeah, my next question was going to be, so we we as a country or right here in the States, I would definitely say have not been as interested in repairing and reusing, yeah. although it is kind of, you know, trending upward, like you mentioned. So do you think we can really regain this interest in really preserving the life of our products? And if so, do you think like, are there ways that we can really, uh, you know, reignite it? Yeah, well, I think it's starting to happen already. You know, one of the things I, I found out with having a six-year-old who likes to tinker with things is that if you go to YouTube, there is a vast genre of how to fix things videos. Anything in your home that's broken, you can find a video on how to fix it on YouTube. And it won't just have 10 views or 20 views. These will have thousands and hundreds of thousands of views. Um, who's watching this stuff? Well, I think it's people who are interested in better maintaining the stuff that they have. Now, what's driving this? You know, I think at a certain point, um, we all reach a fatigue level with stuff and buying and doing it over and over again. And we're starting to see that in consumer surveys. It was really interesting data out of Europe a few years ago um, showing that people were very willing to pay more for goods, washing machines in particular, and that washing machines are a really interesting product to talk about that last longer and can be repaired instead yes. of the much cheaper ones. You know, on average, if they can afford it, they're willing to pay about 15% more if that ensures they have something that lasts longer. Now, is that because, you know, they have a sustainable mindset? Is that because they just want to be smart with their money? You know, pay a little more up front so you pay, you know, pay less over the long term. Hard to say, but I think from a economic and a sustainability standpoint, people are starting to shift to this different way of thinking. And, and, and I think that's really exciting and there's a lot of ways it's happening, um, but, but I think it bodes well for, for sort of our mental health and also the planet. Absolutely. And you touch on something that we haven't got a chance to talk talk about yet, which is really important, which is product quality. Yes. Right. I do feel like, um, you know, I certainly am willing to pay more for a quality product that I'm not going to have to go out and replace. I mean, the, the quote unquote planned obsolescence mm -hmm. <laughs> of electronics or things that just one day you wake up and they're no longer compatible with right. one another. I mean, it's inf infuriating because 
yes, number one, there's a financial cost there. But number two, there's a research cost there. Like, I love that you talk about washing machines because those things are massive. They're very hard to get rid of. Um, I don't think anybody wants to be switching out their washing machine at a frequent basis. But, you know, I actually was looking for one a few years ago. And I remember all these people talking about like, the um the the electronics behind some of these washing machines and how those would fail and it wasn't even necessarily the mechanical parts right and then right. they couldn't they couldn't even get support so anyway i wonder if um you if you're optimistic that product quality might start increasing now as consumers um start to demand it <laughs> yes I, I i i'm super optimistic actually and 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 i think we're really seeing signs of it in in a couple of interesting ways you know um in recent months, and it's really been just in recent months, we're seeing the rise of these online marketplaces focused on apparel, like Poshmark and ThreadUp. And if people are, they're really popular. I mean, they have multi-billion yes. dollar valuations. Well, you know, if you look on those platforms at what brands are most popular, they are the durable brands, you know, the Patagonias, the Lululemons, um, things like that, which are very well made. People will go on to these sites and buy, you know, sort of the lower quality fast fashion, but it's never the high, it's never priced well, and it's never in their top sort of 10 most uh, popular brands. It's this really durable stuff. Um, and, and why that's interesting is, is, you know, if you're buying something secondhand, again, you, you don't want to buy somebody's pilled t-shirt, you know, you want to buy something that is going to last you and not pill 30 washes down the line. Exactly. And, and and what's great about this is the manufacturers are paying attention. You know, they know that their clothes are entering into these secondhand marketplaces. Patagonia is a great example. They not only pay attention to the secondhand market, but they're now buying back their clothes and reselling it on a separate website for their secondhand clothes. Yes, uh, I love that initiative. It's yeah, so cool. Yes, it's exactly. so neat. Worn wear. And, and they're not the only ones starting to do this in apparel. And, you know, what's great about this is it, it becomes this positive feedback loop, you know, where they're saying, OK, we're going to have a secondhand market. We got to make clothes for that secondhand market. You know, the first buyer will have them but then they can last for the second and third buyer. And we're going to make money each time. So suddenly you have this economic incentive for sustainability. And I think that's the ideal model, if you will. Um, Yes. and, And it's very exciting to me. And it's what makes me optimistic. That's amazing. And I've heard so much about the consumer side of things and like mm-hmm. wanting to demand better product quality from a consumer perspective. But when you really break it down from an economic perspective with the um, businesses in mind, that is extremely fascinating. I also share that optimism with you. I believe very strongly in the power of these bigger companies and these mm-hmm. bigger corporations to make change in aggregate, right? Um, right. In addition to our governments, of course, sure. hopefully stepping up to the plate with some <laughs> regulations about end of life and things like that. But yeah, I love it. And, you know, and it's not just fast fashion and and, fur, and, uh, and apparel. Furniture is also becoming part of this. I mean, Ikea is okay. the classic example of fast furniture. Well, Ikea is now working on leasing programs and they're now, uh, they're running tests, uh, they're running pilots on on leasing furniture. And they're also running pilots on letting people return their furniture when they're done with it, with the idea that Ikea will either reuse some of the parts or refurbish it and resell it. So again, you have this purveyor, I don't want to be too rough on Ikea, um, that of what many of us know is not the highest quality furniture, suddenly they have an incentive because they're leasing it. You know, they're going to be taking it back to build better furniture. So you see that feedback loop there. And and I just think it's great. 
It's, it's really, really encouraging. And it's one of the reasons why, I mean, we're in this business, right? We think it's mm-hmm. so interesting to spread the word. And I'm very hopeful about um, the future. And actually, that kind of brings us to um, so the last two questions that we like to ask our guests um, sort of every time on this podcast. So number one, I wonder if you can share a few things with our audience that you do to live sustainably in your everyday life. So it could be related to this topic, but oftentimes we have people share um, kind of random eco-friendly tips. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll give you um, one that I'm, I'm going to be working on this week, and I'm actually putting in a, a compost pile in the backyard. So I'm pretty nice. excited about that. Yeah, we bought we actually bought a house, so we're going to put in the, the compost pile. It's not a very complicated operation, but we're doing it. So I'm really excited to do that. Um, and then in terms of waste and recycling and product durability, um, for me, I, you know, all of us are going to buy new stuff somewhere along the line. I, I meet people who tell me they buy all their things from thrift stores and, and buy it secondhand. And I think that's great. But everything wears out eventually, even the best built product. And so eventually you're going to have to buy something new. And so a few years ago, I just started consciously making the decision that when I buy durable goods and, and, and clothing and durable goods is everything from washing machines to, to um, you know, computers to phones, I would buy one with the idea, I buy something with the idea that it will have a second and third owner. Meaning when I buy it, I'm not necessarily going for the cheapest, though sometimes you can and still get that durable product, but I'm just consciously buying with the idea that it doesn't end with me. That doesn't mean I'm, I'm ready to jettison it. But, you know, I spent a lot of time when I was working on secondhand, um, spending time with people who clean out homes after people downsize for assisted living or, you know, or after they pass away and the families are, are left with what to do with this stuff. And, yep. and it made a huge impression upon me because so much of the stuff that's left behind at the end of our life, it can't have a second and third use. You know, oh it's my just, gosh. You know, yeah. and, and so you see people filling up dumpsters with stuff. And, and I just for me, it really made an impression and it changed me very profoundly. Um, both, uh, you know, on an emotional level where I said, I don't want to leave a bunch of stuff that's no good to, you know, my kid. And, and second, from a sustainability standpoint, I said, you know, we got to stop this. And so the way to stop that is just to be consciously buying with the idea that we're buying heirlooms, you know, things that, you know, can last longer. Now, of course, not everything you can buy, you buy is an heirloom. I may buy some ballpoint pens that aren't heirlooms, but, but at least the idea is keeping in mind that I'm always buying with the idea there's another owner down there. Uh, yeah, I love that take. Um, I, you know, you know, I'm so excited that our generations and future generations are thinking this way, right? Because previous generations, um, I have some family members in mind <laughs> when I say this, you know, have a lot of stuff. Um, yep. And they, every time we go home, will say like, oh, are you interested in this China or things Ugh. like that? And it's just like, I am so sorry, but we do not need China (laughs) in our home. Uh, We are not hosting state dinners. And I think, you know, those types of heirlooms, actually, we could, we could flip that on the head where there's, there's people who used to buy things and accumulate things and, and, you know, just think that their, their children aren't going to pass them off. Right. Right. And you're right. Right. You watch shows. I mean, Hoarders obviously is an extreme example of a show like this, but I mean, just whether or not somebody places value on an item is totally personal. So you can acquire something and think that it's the best thing ever. um, And then you go to gift it to someone and they're like, why are you giving me this? So, so I love to, I love the process of thinking about when we purchase something, thinking about those future owners, right? Like maybe you're going to buy like a hot pink version of something. Maybe Mm -hmm. you take a second to think, 
you know, maybe everybody's not going to be really into this hot pink. Maybe, maybe I should just go ahead with that, like more classic black. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's exactly right. And you know, it's funny. I, I spent time with a, a clean out professional in Minneapolis, you know, who's, who just helps people clean out their homes all day long. And, and a very wise person who I asked her, I said, so what do you buy? And she said, almost nothing. But she said, you know, uh, she said to me something that stuck with me. She says, you know, Hoarding is a spectrum disorder, and and we're all on the spectrum, and it's just a question of where. You know, she says, as humans, we all want to, you know, have things that we own. They they give us comfort, they give us identity, and and it's a struggle, um, you know, to to sort of change how you approach that. And and that was something that made me think really deeply. And I, I think about that all the time. You know, whenever I'm whenever I'm I find myself, you know, needing to go out and buy something. You know, where where does this sort of fit in my own sort of level of, of the spectrum of hoarding. Well, now that I've heard that quote, I'm going to think about every, think about that every time I go out to purchase stuff too. So yeah, I, I love that take on it. And, um, you know, I think the, the last question that we usually end with, which you and I've been talking about this whole time, but we'll go ahead and ask you anyway, sure. <laughs> is, um, what really excites you the most about the ethical and sustainable movement right now? Well, I think what's really exciting um, is the fact that there's starting to be a real business case for it. Now, just I don't want people to misunderstand me. I don't want to say that there should be a business case. We should be doing these things regardless of the profit motive. But all of a sudden, we see with all of these online marketplaces, you know, that are are marketing secondhand clothes and you know selling their shares on the New York Stock Exchange and having multi-billion dollar valuations. All of a sudden, we're seeing what had one time been kind of niche suddenly being very mainstream, and we're seeing sort of the titans of commerce get into it. And to me, that can only be good for the planet. It can only be good for all of our pocketbooks, and it can only signal you know this really positive trend towards sustainability that I just feel in my bones is happening. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. Um, we talk a lot about the economics and the business case around this, right? Because that's what's really needed um, mm-hmm. in order to create change at this level and scale. So, um, Adam, thank you so much for joining us on Good Together today. I learned so much. Uh, we're going to, I've got a bunch of notes. I'm going to go back and share this with the audience. Of course, we'll have show notes, but um, I think your take on an area that is you know, obviously covered a lot, but rarely really, uh, you know, have deep dives applied to it is fascinating. So thanks so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Good Together. To get show notes and more, head to brightly.eco slash podcast. And as a special thank you to our listeners, use code GOODTOGETHER to get 10% off all products in Brightly's brand new shop full of planet positive swaps for your home. Finally, don't forget to join in on the conversation with us on social, where I know you can find us at brightly.eco. Don't forget, we're all on this journey together, so have fun putting the planet first and stay curious.